we continue in Matthew. If your Bible is nearby, you would turn to chapter 20. And as we consider what value is in the kingdom, um, I reflected somewhat on what retailers do these days to get the edge on their market. So I I don't know when this trend really started, um, but whether or not it's the number of products they carry, the the trusted go-to brands um, that they know will always sell, always have a loyal base, or if you know the profit margins, price, um, price management—if that's the goal—I know a number of these retailers. One of the things that they've done, um, emerging to try and get more profit share, get more of a corner on the market, um, and you'll probably have some of these in mind. They've developed their own product line. So you go to Target, and you know you go down the soap aisle, and you've got the Dove and the Ivory and the Irish Spring and the Dial and the whatever else, and then there right there is Target brand. Um, And so Target does this, um, Dollar General does this, they've got the Dollar General brand, Um, Costco does this. You would think Costco is making enough because you buy like five years of supplies every time you go. And you would think that, but they've got their Kirkland brand, you know, and Kirkland has become this trusted, we don't know why, I don't know what Kirkland stands for doesn't sound great, but it's Kirkland. Um, and so we've come to trust it. And so they, they, um, they get this better market share because, you know, they're the ones making the product. They don't have to pay the purchase value to the seller. Um, and so it's a better deal for them. Um, and they've got to they've do what they think um, will get you to buy it because it's really not the best of the products that are available. Um, you know you'll get something solid, but it's not the best. Um, the Dove, the Ivory, the Dial, they're, they're going to be the top. The, um, like right now, Costco has Pantene shampoo and Kirkland shampoo. Everybody's got more confidence in Pantene, but you buy the Kirkland because you get it $2 cheaper. So, um, you know, you're thinking about this, and all these stores that have their marketing approach, um, to me, the one that I think is the most, um, you could say it's successful, or they've got the, the best target on it, not Target, but um, the way that Walmart markets their their own proprietary line. Um, to me, it's the most memorable. It's the most notable. Um, you're probably thinking, "Oh yeah, I know, I know what it is." And you might, you might, because it's the only one I can't remember. I remember Kirkland because it's like, where'd that come from? Um, but I remember the Walmart because it's great value, and it works on so many different levels. Because you think. Um, I'm getting a great product, and I, I know this is lame. I'm getting a great product. This product has value. This is a product of great value. This is a great value for this product. Um, and so it's this marketing mashup where it seems like from whatever angle it comes from, um, it sells, and it sells value, and it sells confidence. Um, it's a win, 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 win. Um, no one's compromising because you feel, you come away and you think, man, that, that really was great value. Um, and so I think they're the most successful at this. And at the center of the text that we're in in Matthew 20 is this cost and value question. Um, Jesus, he's on the verge of establishing his kingdom and he's approached by 
some of his disciples and their mom, um, and they're looking to get their foot in the door. And Jesus is headed off to Jerusalem, and that's where they think everything's going to take off. And they've been with him for three years now, so this is it. This is the moment. Um, People are going to get assigned positions. Um, This is the time. The shakedown's happening. Let's lock it in. Um, they want to claim and establish their, their position, this place of value with Jesus. And so you might, you might ask, what's the worst get, that can happen, right? And um, this self-centeredness that's shown by the disciples' question, by the disciples, what are they concerned with? They're not concerned with Jesus. They're not concerned with um, how better might we fall in line with what you're doing? How better might we understand? How better might we be used up by you? They're like, Jesus... What's in this thing for me? Um, What's the cost? What's the return? Is this a great value type of king? Does he hit the sweet spot on this? Um, Does he get what he wants and I get what I want and we both end up with this mutually agreeable thing where everybody comes out ahead? Um, We can give him a seat at the table of our lives and he'll give us a seat at the table in the afterlife. Trade for trade, right? We give him a little bit, he gives us a little bit. And so if you're more of a note-taker <clears throat> or listener who's helped by um, signposts and ordered thought, um, tune in. I think the flow of the passage works really well. Um, moving through Matthew to see the hand of God, the plan of God, in the heart of God. Um, the hand of God um, is shown as Jesus, he's delivered. He will be delivered to Jew and to Gentile. And for death and resurrection, he finds that he's both in the hands of men and yet at the same time in the hand of God. Uh, We see the plan of God, um, the desire for status and honor as kingdom benefits. That's what the disciples ask and press of Jesus. Um, And he says, I provide ransom. That's my plan. Humiliation is the cost. That's the way of my kingdom. Seeing the heart of God. The crowds are scorners. The crowds are rebukers to those that cry out for mercy. And Jesus, his heart's revealed in that he takes on their scorn. And he gives sight to those who cry out to him because he's merciful. And so this moving is from suffering to status to sight. And so... um, Look along with me as I read, and um, I'm uh, hoping my voice will hold as best as it will. It's given out a couple times this week. Um, so look along with me, Matthew 20, 17 through the end of the chapter. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up before him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's go to the word in prayer. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would make the reading and teaching of your word effective. Um, Lord, for the, the movement and growth and life of your kingdom as you've done from generation unto generation. Lord, we pray that you would do that even now. We trust and hope in you. We ask in Jesus. Amen. Um, movement here is from suffering to status to sight. Um, no one leads like Jesus because he alone is a Messiah who's delivered and raised. And this is all by the hand of God. Um, when our approach to Jesus is about how he can add value to us, we see that we're actually being blind to him. We miss the plan that's at hand. Moving to the end of this passage, when Jesus is freeing the blind, they see Jesus and they find that they know the value of following after him because they know the value and greatness of his mercy and they begin to actually know Jesus himself in his heart as it's revealed. Jesus is, he's forever struggling with his disciples for them to catch on, for them to catch up to the nature of his kingdom, to the nature of what he's doing. Um, They don't pick up what he's laying down. They don't smell what he's cooking. There's this forever, he's trying to get them to get on board, um, and they're dragging their feet, and he's dragging them behind him. Um, He points them to himself. They go the opposite direction. He runs back around so that he finds them and pulls them again. And so three times, um, both in Mark and this Matthew, this pattern emerges of when Jesus starts to talk about suffering and death, um, it's like the disciples just stick their fingers in their ears and go, nah, 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 da, 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 da. Um, and then they start doing stupid stuff. And so Jesus, he points, he points downward, taking them low into this valley of suffering, saying, this is the downward way of suffering and death. This is the nature of my kingdom. Um, and the disciples start trying to talk him out of it. They say, well, what about the value? Well, what about, what about this? Let's go up on the mountain of glory, Jesus. We don't see that. There's, there's nothing good down there in that suffering place. We've got to go up. 
we got to go up to greater places of glory. Um, remember, Messiahship, Jesus. And Jesus has to come back and take them back down, teaching them again that the way up is the way that's down. And so hearing Jesus' words, it's not just hard for the disciples in their day, it's hard for us now. Um, it was hard for them who were by his side for three years, um, but it doesn't make it any less easy for us to hear. Um, we don't like lowering ourselves. Um, we like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We like guarding, protecting, keeping ourselves. Um, we can dismiss pretty easily and say, he didn't, mean, he didn't mean all this stuff that he said that's really hard and really intense um, because of grace, right? Or he didn't mean any of this stuff here and now to like be lasting. These weren't like lasting remarks. This is all pre-Holy Spirit stuff. So, you know, we get the Holy Spirit. We got relief. We got relief from this. Um, there's a lot of, oh, well, God wants good things. Suffering is definitely not good. Um, so God wants good things. This was old kingdom. We're talking new kingdom. There's lots of ways that we can dismiss um, our ability to even have listening ears for Jesus. And so in verses 17 through 19, we find Jesus here. He's in this unknown place, um, but he's on a journey towards Jerusalem. We don't know what spot he's stopping off here, but he's taking a path that the Jewish readers in Matthew's audience, they would hear um, that Jesus is retracing the path of conquest for Israel. He's retracing where they have been, having left Egypt, gone through the season of the Exodus, having come into the land of Canaan on conquest, and they've had their marching orders. And so Jesus is walking the path of historic Israel here, headed down this east side of the river of the Jordan towards the, um, towards the sea there, in, uh, on approach towards Jericho, which shows up in just a little bit. And so he's there. He pulls his disciples aside because the hard things that he has to say, he knows are hard. He knows it'll rattle the crowds, but he thinks, let's give this to the disciples. They need to know. They need to know here and now, those who are closest to him, those who will feel the deepest impact of the events of his passion. Referring to himself as the Son of Man, which he also often does, here's what he says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Twice here does Jesus use this expression of delivered, um, which is a hand over. It's the same language that's used throughout the Old Testament of how God handles and hands over his people who are caught in their sin. Um, when Israel's persisting, when they're sluggish, when they're dragging, he painfully hands them over. He painfully delivers them over to their sin and to their foe. And so Jesus is handed over. He's handed over first to God's people, which is... Um, He's handed over um, to his own people, which is just so stunning. Um, namely, the Sanhedrin here, this high priest court of the Jews, as they're represented, um, where he's going to be condemned, condemned by his own people to death, um, since they have no power to carry out this death 
He's handed over again to the Gentiles, to foreigners, to these Romans, to be mocked, to be flogged, and even to be crucified. And here's the most explicit of of the predictions where Jesus speaks about his death, um, where Matthew, he goes so far as to point out crucifixion. This is a pivotal moment for Matthew's hearers. This is a pivotal moment for how explicit Jesus is about, here's what I'm going to face. Here's the way my kingdom advances. Here's the gruesome nature and the rawness of my suffering. But notice what the disciples probably missed, even though Jesus himself has handed over the hand of God is not removed from him. Again, only do we hear Matthew helping us hear the clear, passive voice of Jesus' resurrection. It isn't something that he's going to do. He's not say, and I'm going to bust out on that third day. You're going to see me. He says, he will be raised by the Father. The power of God and the hand of God will remain on him even as he's handed over and is shown as he is raised. This downward turn of suffering, Jesus' disciples, they can't, they can't stomach hearing it, so they make this upward turn to their own status. Um, let's not get low, Jesus. Let's talk about how we're going to get ahead. Verses 20 through 23 give us the first half of this exchange as Jesus is um, speaking to this, these two and their mom before he goes and speaks to the rest of the ten. Um, and apparently in 2008, I was watching too many movies because it was um, near impossible for me to get the memory of um, this Barbara Streisand, Seth Rogen movie out of my head. Um, it, it probably was not a very good movie, and like not in moral standards, but just in terms of story and compelling, it probably wasn't. But um, this, this movie, Guilt Trip, about a son and a mom, and um, the son is trying to make his way in the world, and he's got potential, but there, there's things that he just can't quite get right. Um, and so Streisand, she's there, and she's done something to get in the way. He's got his next big opportunity. You know, this, I think he's an inventor or something, um, and he's got his next big opportunity. She does something to mess it up, and um, she can't step back. She can't take her hand off the situation. She can't just let go and give him the freedom to succeed or fail or whatever he's going to do. Um, and so he's got this interview, he's got this appointment, this thing, and she's messed something up. And so, of course, what does she do? She beats him 30 minutes to the thing and shows up and, like, pre-interviews for her son. Oh, my son, he's just the greatest. He is just so swell, and you just wouldn't imagine all the things. And it is really my fault that things didn't go, you know. And so she goes, um, and this is, this is the classic move um, that it seems like is happening in this situation where um, the sons of Zebedee, these brothers, James and John, they're there, and uh, where are they? Mom's right there. Mom's right there. She's classic snowplow mom. Um, she's right here into this image. Um, and before we're like just entirely uncharitable, a lot of the commentators, um, they speak as to who this, um, who this woman, who the mother of these brothers um, the sons of Zebedee, who she might actually be. Um, and so it's actually helpful. Um, it's not entirely clear, but there's some, some synthesis, the way that the Gospels speak about who is seen where and which account and who belongs to who and who belongs to who. Um, and so there's kind of a, a crosswork map that we can make. Um, and it actually looks as if this is um, the, mother James, the mother of James and John is Salome, um, who would be Jesus' aunt and the sister of his mother Mary, 
This makes a little bit more sense why she would be here appearing and making this type of request to Jesus. So it's not one of those 100% things, but if you look at the way um, the characters are spoken at from different angles, it seems that that's who this is, Jesus' aunt with his cousins. And so she is, if this is what's happening, she sees the time of the kingdom drawing near. It makes good sense. It makes right sense to her. Um, Jesus is going to be the number one. We got to make this a family thing, Jesus. Now you've got your two cousins here, and you got cousin one, cousin two. I don't know which one you want to put next to you is like first in line, second in line. Um, but before you look at these other ten guys, remember you've got blood right here. This is, you know, we go back. We've got history, and so there's this. Um, it would be a natural thing if Jesus is truly setting up a kingdom on approach to Jerusalem, this would be a natural time for him to start, um, you're going to do this, you're going to be this guy, we're going we're gonna to get this stuff set up. Um, and so she's, she's there, um, but we need to hear her posture. We need to hear the humble nature of how she approaches. Um, she's there before Jesus. And where is she? She's kneeling. She's kneeling there with these two sons, and she indicates that she's there to make a request. Jesus, will you lend me your ear? Jesus, I'm here to seek an audience with you. And this is important. You know, um, you know that thing where you say, hey, I'm going to ask you something. Can you just go ahead and say yes before I ask the thing? Because then, you know, if I just know you're going to say yes, then that'll give me the freedom. I can go ahead and ask, but then... You know, let's not make it awkward. I don't want to ask and you say no, so if I just know you're going to get... And so Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't give her the easy yes. Um, he says, ask whatever you wish. He doesn't say, ask whatever you wish and it'll be so because you're my aunt. Um, Jesus, he's waiting to hear her request, and then he gives his reply. What do you want? What do you want? It's not this, what do you want? Um, but the tone of this is expressed. The English sounds a bit curt. Um, I think it would help us hear to him say, what is it that you would ask of me? What is it? Um, I'm inviting you to make your request. You have my ear. I'm here. I'm listening. Her reply. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Again, here's a mom with great ambition and hope for her sons. Um, she wants great things for them. Um, I remember a conversation I had a few years back with a dad, and um, his son was in early high school. And um, this dad was really focusing in on the potential of this young man. And um, he saw this, um, this youth emerging into strength and stepping in and seeing this... Um, this frame that was starting to build on this young guy and, and seeing strength and size and, um, and potential um, in him saying, now I know he's going to be a great athlete because he's got these components. This is all lining. I mean, I really see this happening. But what I think he could be more. I think he could be a leader and not just like a leader of a couple guys around him. You know what I think he could be like? I think he could be like, he could be a Tim Tebow. And I know we're like post-Tebow buds, blah, this was like back a while ago. So 
this is before the fizzled NFL stuff and all that, but Tebow was this guy who, by the measure of the Christian scene of leadership, um, he's, a, he's a believer, not just a believer, he's a believer athlete, not just a believer athlete, he's a believer athlete football player, and not just that, he's like super successful in his realm, again, early, early. Um, he's, he's, um, he's a starter, he's a team captain, he's a championship winner, he's an award winner, uh, he goes to his family's organ- orphanage in the Philippines. He's speaking to guys in prisons. He's, when he's in the Philippine orphanage, he's circumcising babies. Who knows? He, there's nothing this guy can't do. That's a true story. And he goes, and he's, he's this superstar of this Christian leadership ideal of what is strength, what is greatness, who's got this. There's, like, nothing this guy can't do. Let's see if he can play baseball. Um, and so being a Christian leader in this place of status, it's not that it's a bad thing unless it's the place of status that's consuming us. Um, I'm so thankful for so many of um, the men in today's generation who God has poured out by his spirit incredible gifts. Um, it's easy to take a glance at the collection of, of, of gifted and... Um, just marvelous men and women uh, noted in this in the Gospel Coalition, and just ooh and awe. Ah. They're the book writers, they're the workshop leaders, they're the speakers. Um, I mean, they're, they're just amazingly gifted, dearly loved. And the reason that we can celebrate them so freely is because they don't do what they do so that we think they're great. The reason that John Piper continues to be dear to the church, the reason that Tim Keller continues to be dear to the church, and you know the Steve Browns and the Carsons is, is they help us see Jesus. They help us see Jesus. They help us and lead us to grow more in love with God and know the great love that he has for us as his people. Um, and that's great. That's the place of, if we're going to say, we've got, what does it mean to be in status and serve the kingdom? That's it. Um, to know that guys like Steve Brown, he doesn't get rich off of royalties of book sales. It goes back into the ministry. He doesn't see that um, because it's not about him. It's about the king and the kingdom. And so there's something that's even great about what Salome asks. Um, you know, even though we're kind of jumping on her case, we need to see that what she asks, she asks by faith. When she asks, she asks expecting his kingdom, which is not visible, This kingdom is going to be real. This kingdom is going to take off. Jesus is just a bunch of people. He's just there roaming around with the crowds. He doesn't have any structure. He doesn't own any buildings. He doesn't have any armies. But Jesus, when the time comes, she asks by faith. She asks, asks with confidence. But while she asks with faith, she asks with self centeredness. She has a high view of Christ, but without a right view of everything else. Um, It's almost an identical exchange, um, but he's much more gentle with her. Jesus and Peter, um, you know, Jesus, you are the Christ, is is Peter's profession to him at one turn. And then, um, get behind me, Satan, is the next thing out of Jesus' mouth towards Peter. This, I think you're getting it, but you don't get it. Um, Because Jesus, you know, hears from Peter, oh, you can't die. But here Jesus calms He calms Salome. He calms these brothers without crushing. So speaking to her and then redirecting to the brothers, 
You don't know what you're asking. Here to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And here when Jesus speaks the cup, we have a rich, full, um, we have a rich, full body of, of content and usage of um, this cup of wrath, this cup of judgment, this cup of what is my portion? Um, you know, the Lord is my cup. The Lord is my portion. The cup of the Lord is poured out on those who oppose him, his great wrath. And so there's a richness and a fullness in language here um, that they're hearing. And so they're thinking, well, maybe, yeah, I I can. Um, I can handle the leadership that you want to give me. If you've got a portion for me, Jesus, I can do it. I'll stand up to the challenge. Um, Put me in, coach. Put me in. Let um, Let me do it. Give me a chance. And they say yes to Jesus without saying and really understanding what they're saying yes to. Um, this can be what we do to each other as the church grows. This can be what we do to each other when we say, um, do you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's a pretty, that's a, that's a great thing to receive. Yes, I want that. And alongside with that, are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to bear his name? Would you endure being condemned as he was condemned? Would you take up your cross and follow him? Well, hang on now. That's, that's kind of not where we started. Um, where we started sounded really good, but then we went to this other place. Maybe we need to go back to the over here. He says to them, you will drink this cup. You will drink the cup. You can't do it, but you're, ab- you're going to be able because of me, and because of me, you will do it. You can do it because... I will do it. I'll drink the cup of wrath, and what you drink, you drink after me. They go in the wake of Jesus so that he is the lead sufferer. And where they go, they go in his train. He clears the way, and we follow in his steps. And so while they're concerned with their own status, Jesus is showing them again his status, that it's not his to grant. It's not about who's number one or who's number two. Um, he's there to carry out not his own will, but he's there to carry out the will of the Father. He's a, his status is to submit, and his status is to be humbly submitted. And of course, the rest of the disciples, they hear this whole thing, and it's, hey, how did these two get the angle on us? They beat us to the punch. They almost got the number one and number two spot. There's 10 of us here. There's 10 of us, and they can't get this thing going without us. Um, And so I think they're kind of angry on lots of levels, maybe because, like, they didn't think of it first, and then they almost lost the shot at the big deal um, because they were going to get the best spots. And so there's just, just like, so much angry and tension, and everybody's just pent up, and, like, they're in a pressure cooker here. Um, And so Jesus, he gets them all together, and he says, "Um, I want you to hear the nature of my kingdom. You know the things that the world does? You know the way that people try and be in charge of each other? If you're a boss, you're free to act like a boss. You can step on people. You can push people around. You don't have to apologize. You can make them grovel for advancement. They're here to kiss your rear. You don't have to apologize. You know, you're an authority, so you do what you want when you're an authority. Um, as long as you're bigger unless somebody else bigger comes, or maybe equal. Um, but Jesus is saying, guys, we don't do this. 
This is how the world works, but this isn't what we do. This isn't uh, Machiavelli's, do we need to make people love each other or fear us? Oh, yeah, we need to make them fear us, so they'll do what we say. Or, or um, I love Michael Scott's, I want them to be afraid of how much they love me. You know, let's just make people so intermingled and confused that they're, ugh. Um, this isn't a manipulation game, which is what they're used to seeing, people getting the upper hand. Um, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of self-advancement. It's not a, it's not a kingdom of strategies but it's a kingdom of self-lowering. That's confusing. Because the way that Jesus leads is to take the lowest status possible. The thing that, that's hard for them to hear on this um, as Jesus speaks about being a slave is it hits on multiple levels. Um, for them, status, coming out of this Greco-Roman background, um, status is about, it's about what you do with your time, like, what's, what's the stuff that you do? Like, what's your job? You know, we say, oh, what do you do? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think better worship you now because I know what you do. It's about what you do. It's about, oh, you're in charge of how many people? Oh, yeah, you're centurion. Centur- yeah, we know that. Oh, you got 100 guys. You're, you're the big deal. You're the big deal. How many employees do you have under you? What's your team like? Um, what's your free time? You get vacation? How many hours you got to put in? What do you get to do with the, You taking some big trips this year? Slaves have the worst of all of these. They do the worst of the stuff. They don't have any say to take credit for what they do or where their time goes. And they have no status in their whole lives. Um, they, they get the least of all of these things. So when Jesus is saying, be a servant, even a slave, that's really insulting. Um, they think that they're worthy of stature and posture in the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, look at me. This is what I'm doing right now. Shortly after this, he's going to wash their feet and make visible what he's saying to them. For Jesus to lay down this ethic of leadership, he turns the values of their world upside down. Um, What would have been um, Greco-Roman from Plato, this Platonic ideal? How can anyone be happy? This is one of the Platonic ideals. How can anyone be happy when he's the slave of anyone else at all? I can't be under anybody's thumb. If, if anybody has any say over anything I do, there's no chance. You've got to cut free from everybody. That's the idea. Um, the language might be closer to home of, um, I'm not going to do that. I'm the king of this castle. Um, you better watch out because if mama ain't happy, no one's happy. There are these maxims that work in our culture that expose we believe some pretty similar stuff. Um, Our values show up um, as we get propped up against each other. If you've got the family living room with the TV, like, it's the weekend. Who's watching what? Who calls the shots? Um, Who's giving up the remote? Um, At best, I think we kind of try and go equal for equal. You get this amount of computer time, and then it's this person's turn, and then it's this person's turn. At our worst, we function out of our pecking orders. Um, Oldest sibling, oldest sibling, you're the strongest, you're the biggest, so you get to call the shots, right? I remember um, our Sunday morning ritual in my house. It was me and my sister, um, and we had this breakfast ritual, and so we would get uh, every Sunday morning, I don't know when this started, 
but we would have a Sara Lee coffee cake. They probably don't taste that good. I don't know. But the, the memory of this coffee cake was like, this was like the delight of Sunday morning. Um, and the thing would be baking the, baking in the oven, and it took a long time to bake because it was like a frozen thing. Um, so again, you know, not fresh, but still. Um, it's like the upper, the upper echelon of Sunday morning childhood. And so this thing would come out, and it would be too hot to eat right away, and so it would sit on the kitchen table, and we would be staring at it and smelling it. Um, and then at some point, one of the two of us would have to make the cut. One of the two of us would have to take the knife and make the down-the-middle cut. And you would look at the thing, and you would say, um, man, where's the best, like, crumble? Where's the best crumble and the best, like, poofy spots and the best tasty spots? And let me try and get the cut so that I'm not going to, I mean, I don't want to give too much on one side. Because if I get too much on one side, she might pick that side, and then I'm going to get the janky side. I want to try and get this thing lined up so that she gets what she wants, I get what I want. There is nothing that postures servanthood. There is nothing that postures selflessness in that. Um, but our, con- our culture is constantly telling us we've got to get our portion. We've got to get our portion, and we've got to take care of number one. Because if number one falls apart, everything else falls apart, um, which is not the way of the kingdom. Um, do you know what is, um, what is crazy about us as a church? What's crazy about us as a church is... Um, yeah, that, this Chat Valley, the CVPC people, they go down. Even the ones that don't have kids anymore, who they got their own kids out of the diapers, they go down there with the dirty snot-nosed diaper kids. They go down there, and they wipe the note. They take those kids, those ratty kids, they take those ratty kids to the bathroom, and they have to change the poopy diapers. It's not even there. It's somebody else's kid. They don't come get them out of the worship service to go down and change it. They actually go down there to do that. And they're not getting paid for it. They volunteer for it. That's crazy. You know what I heard about that CVPC church? Now, this is strange, but I heard that all those people, they take turns cleaning the toilets in that place. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe they're broke. Maybe they're crazy. But something smells funny about that. You know about that church over there? I hear they bring meals over to the elementary school teachers. I don't know what to think about that. Um, they do that for them and they, over at the Villa Way community. They've either got a lot of food to throw away or they're really careless with their resources. Right? And so the list goes on. When the nature of service in the kingdom, which is founded on the servant king, shows up, it's confusing and it's disorienting but people began to smell the encounter of Jesus. Being a people who are, um, I've not been able to be part of the Sunday morning, this class on generosity, but the nature of generosity is confusing. Um, It's confusing because it topples the value systems of the world around us. To be the older brother, older sister, and give up the best spot, that's confusing. When you're the fastest, it doesn't matter who calls shotgun, you get to that door handle and you put yourself in the seat and then you hit the lock button and then it's yours, right? Because possessions, two, two-thirds, three-fourths, whatever it is. That's the way of our kingdom. You exercise the strength that you have to get what you want and make sure you get yours. When older submits to younger, that turns the world's authority upside down. When husbands and wives submit to each other, 
that's confusing, but it smells like Jesus. Jesus comes not just to model the servanthood and his example for us to follow, but he calls us to see him do for us things that we can't do for ourselves. He says, I come to rescue you. I come to give my life as a ransom for many. This is what he says in this ransom language. Um, it's one thing for, um, for Jesus' disciples to understand slavery. They know what it is to be owned. Because if you're owned by a family, if you're owned by someone, you have a purchase price. Um, somebody else, if, if you've got family, um, your own family that can save up enough money and with you, they could buy you out. Maybe if, if you're diligent enough and you're disciplined enough and over 20, 30 years you save up enough money to buy yourself out, you could even do that. You would have to like go and have yourself assigned um, to one of the temple gods of like, oh yeah, I'm still going to be owned by somebody. I'll be owned by this temple god, but I'm still going to be owned by somebody. Um, and so there's, there's images that they have of, um, of bond servanthood and being paid off. But there's something... Um, and Jesus speaking about the condition in which they need ransom, they're far worse off than that. They're far worse off than being bond servants or, or servants here. Um, they're worse off because the ransom language um, is language of needing a substitute. It's, this is uh, prisoner of war language. This is in the bondage of captivity by your enemy language. This is, there's no money to pay off Somebody's got to take your seat. This is prisoner exchange. Jesus has already asked his disciples this question earlier in Matthew 16. He says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And what's made clear at the cross for us is that Jesus is doing a complete and final ransoming work. He does a complete work that doesn't leave any payment outstanding. There's no payment remaining. 1 Peter 1 Peter writes us, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The ransom of Jesus is powerful and effective and for many. Jesus continues and he turns towards Jerusalem. He's, he's shown and he's spoken on suffering. Um, he's He's bared with his disciples in their obsession with status. And now he turns to sight. Um, I don't like when things get in my way. Um, especially when I don't think that, um, I'm, well, either I'm not expecting them to get in my way or I think that they're not important. Um, or I've got something really important to do. I had a week um, a few months back when that felt like it was the story of the week. Um, I'd driven in the parking lot and got out of my car and went to turn and go around. And as I was coming around the back corner of my car, I look at my tire and there's this big old shard of metal. You know, this big old jagged triangular piece of metal jutting out the back of my tire. And it was one of those, like, it was in the spot. It's like, maybe I could pull it out. But I don't want to pull it out because if I pull it out and then all the air goes out, then I'm really going to be in an issue. At least now, this thing's like puncture sealed where it's in there nice and good and I can drive on it. Um, at least so I thought, which I did. And so I was like, I don't want to deal with this chunk of metal in my tire right now, but I don't really have a choice. Um, it's not important, but it's the thing in my face. And so, you know, I went and I went to the tire shop, 
they pulled it off, told me how it couldn't be fixed, which is mostly the case when you go to the tire shop. And then they gave me the new, or, you know, new used tire, which was just fine. So I got that out of the way. Um, had to drop what I wanted to do. And then I got back on track. So I get back on track later that week. Um, I'm trying to do the things that I think are important, trying to do the things that I think I need to take care of. And then um, I, I go to print something from my computer and like the program shuts down. And like, well, that, that wasn't good. And so then I go and I try and open it up again and I'm you know, like, it won't open now. And I was like, well, that's really not good. Um, and nobody wants to stop, you know, when you don't have like your own IT department, nobody wants to stop and be like, okay, I need to go on Google for two hours and do all these resets and try and find codes and punch in things. We don't like these interruptions. When we're headed somewhere with something to do, when we're fixed and focused on a task, get out of my way. Jesus is a day's travel from hitting Jerusalem. He's turned the corner on Jericho. He's in the final gaze of getting to Jerusalem after three years. He's ready to do what he's there to do. And what happens? He's on his way out, and these two blind men start shouting. They start shouting, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They do what they can only do because they're blind guys. Um, they don't know what, what else to do because it's not like they can run him down because they can't see him. You know, that's kind of obvious, but we don't, we don't think that. Um, we don't think or read the obvious, but they're sitting there, these guys together, um, and they're really starting to tick people off because the whole crowd is on their way to Passover. The whole crowd is on their way. And they don't want Jesus to get hung up, and they don't want themselves to get hung up. You know that thing where there's people around Jesus, and they think they're all going somewhere and doing what Jesus wants, and then there's, like, nagging people? It sounds like the church. They don't like the noise, so they start rebuking. They start heckling. They start trying to shut up the people that are crying out for Jesus when they've got somewhere to go. Because for these blind men, they don't have dignity to save and they don't have a second chance. They probably heard of Jesus, but they've never been around him because they're still blind. If they'd been around him, they wouldn't be blind. So maybe Jesus stops because the shouting's crazy. Maybe he stops because of what they're shouting. The cry is the cry of Kyrie Eleison. It's, it's the cry that's been in the um, liturgy of our church for generations. It's the cry of the song um, that we've sang these past months of Lord have mercy Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. This is the cry of these blind men, which has made its way into the worship of our church. And this is the first time in Jesus' ministry where he's cried out to as Messiah, and he doesn't try and quiet it. He doesn't do the, keep that to yourself, now's not the time. He's on the cusp of Passover. He's on the cusp of entering, and Palm Sunday's around the corner, they're going to shout it. Let's let them shout it. And so he stops. He grants them an audience. What do you want me to do for you? And he asks them here, even though he's, he, he perceives in their minds, he perceives in their hearts, and yet he asks um, because it's important. Um, we know from Luke's account that these guys are alms beggars. They're people who depend on others for money to survive. And so what they ask of Jesus is important. 
because it shows whether or not they get who he is or not. Do they ask of him, can you give me what anybody could give me? Can you give me a little money? Can you help me buy a meal? Do you have what the rest of the world can already supply, or are you different? You know, he's an important teacher, so he's got to have some extra. But when they ask, they ask of something that only faith can supply. They ask, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Theirs is an ask of urgent faith. And Jesus feels for them. Um, We could say that he had great compassion for them. Um, It says he felt um, in Jesus he has pity, is the way the ESV reads. Um, The literal reading is he, he felt for them deep down inside. To his depths, Jesus felt for these two blind men that cry for mercy. What do they have to offer him? They're not part of his crowd of supporters. They don't have a skill set. They're just beggars. They don't promote or advance him. Why would he care for them? But they've asked of him something that only God can do. No prophet before Jesus has ever healed the blind. And Jesus has healed the blind throughout his ministry. Um, Whether by um, prayer towards heaven or mixing spit and dirt to make a mud paste to put on someone's eyes. But here, he turns to them, he touches their eyes, and immediately they're healed. The power of Messiahship is on full display. The mercies of the kingdom. He's showing there's nothing between what's flowing and running through him and what's flowing out to these recipients of mercy. And these men, they receive not just their sight, but they receive with their eyes the Jesus they called on by faith. That's the language that Matthew uses when he says they followed him. It's his discipleship language of they pledged themselves to him. Um, Too often we find that when we ask, we ask like Jesus' disciples. We've been around him for a while. We think we we know what he's about. Um, You know, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for being my Lord and my Savior and all that, but I've got some real hard things in life right now. I've got problems at work, and I've got things with health, and, you know, Jesus, if you could really take care of those things, that would be enough. Because when we've lost sight of the sin that's been forgiven, and we no longer marvel at the mercy that we've received, we forget the sweetness of our first encounters with Jesus which are no less sweet than our next encounters with Jesus. And these blind men, by worldly standards, they're fools because they're following after someone without any regard for themselves. What do they leave behind? We don't know. Who cared about them? That's a thing of the past. What's going to happen in tomorrow? Who's going to feed and clothe them? They've got Jesus. They're not anxious for tomorrow. We have this same Jesus. We have the author of salvation. We have the redeemer, healer, king of heaven, lamb of God, who by his crucifixion and resurrection drinks the cup. He drinks the cup and everything he gains, he holds out to us. And that changes everything. That continues to change everything. The great wonder of worship is that when we're responding by spirit and truth to a knowledgeable encounter with this triune God, even as is shown here in this 
um, this case with Jesus, is everything else fades. Everything else is silent background noise. The cup we drink now, we're able to drink. Not pretending that suffering and hardship aren't real. Not that they're not coming. Not that they aren't here now. But that those things no longer have the power to take Jesus off his throne or take our gaze from him. If we but listen to the song of love that he sings over us that stills and quiets our hearts. It's in the suffering and drinking the cup that we find the sight to lean into Christ. Because all the noise and busyness doesn't hold up. Not to escape the suffering, but to endure through it because we're united with him and he's our supply. He's real to us. The realness of life that we have is clear. What I want you to hear is whether or not we've been around Jesus for years and we've misunderstood him or his kingdom, or whether or not we're those who we think we don't have anything to offer him, we only know rumors about him. Regardless of where we stand, he invites us. Regardless of where we stand, he grants us an audience. An audience to come to him, to speak to him, and to ask of him. And as we ask for Jesus, either wrongfully for personal gain or from a place of beautiful, urgent faith, what we get is the same. Regardless of how we ask, we get Jesus. And so I encourage you to ask of Jesus. Keep coming back to him. Because as you make your requests, as you make your encounters with him, you'll see his realness and see his merciful love. So pray with me. Father, that we would know the greatness of the display of your love for us in your son, Jesus. That we would know the powerful workings of your spirit, which draw and bind us to you. Lord, that we would be a known and saved people drawn out from among the nations to show your merciful kingdom, to show that you have heard from even those like us, that you have welcomed us, that you've not been withholding, but, Lord, that you're generous and plentiful with what's yours. We pray these things in Jesus. Amen.